Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Previously on the Mike Wise Show. The the majority of the windows, it's been all G League players, and it's been almost a completely different roster each time. And the job that uh, Jeff has done, Jeff's obviously been the head coach in every one of these. Mo McCone was one of the assistants. Um, these last two windows, John Thompson the third. I think John's been in all five of them. Uh, John Thompson the third and Mark Fox uh, are the assistants here. Othella Harrington is the advanced scout. They've just done, an, honestly, an unbelievable job uh, getting, getting us quality. It just means that you know when Pop reconvenes with the, the real national team uh, in August, the, the NBA players – they, they're already qualified. They go directly to China. There'll be 32 teams in China. 31 had to qualify in China as the host team. Uh, so, I mean, the job that the G League players and Jeff Van Gundy and Sean Ford from USA Basketball did is, Mike, it's really, you know, everybody says, well, what, what do you mean? What's the big deal? It was easy. It was not easy to qualify. It was really an achievement. So, oh, um, especially with Jeff that. For the job he did. That was P.J. Carlissimo from back in February talking about the coaching job that today's guest, Jeff Van Gundy, did with the FIBA qualifying team for the World Championships. We'll discuss Jeff's future coaching ambitions, his thoughts on partner Mark Jackson's coaching roadblock, and how he came this close to having a meaningful relationship with a famous actress. (laughs) Jeff Van Gundy on The Mike Wise Show. The mic is yours, Darlene. The Mike Wise Show is a presentation of Pure Hoops Media. The Mike Wise Show is hosted by a guy who played basketball atrociously for Hawaii Pacific College, which forced him into journalism. And, oh yeah, he wrote about basketball for the New York Times, the Washington Post, and ESPN. He's also a wise-ass, and so are many of his guests. Right, Mike? Welcome to the Mike Wise Show, my uh, lucky 21 uh, episode here. Jeff Van Gundy, a person I know very well from over the years. Shoot, he was really the first coach that I covered in the NBA. And now he's morphed into what I would call the best broadcaster in America. Well, okay. Is that, is that too, is that, am I going too far, Jeff? Yeah, you just uh, went way overboard. And I don't even know what the best broadcaster would be. It's the one, it's the one that you like, right? It's, it's all per, personal preference. So yeah, but, but I appreciate I think, it, though, Mike. No, I think for like for for a person that's a, a basketball uh, hoop head, I think Marv Albert comes to mind because he's been around so long and you love hearing his voice. But I, I think I heard somewhere before, nobody is better – at calling a at, at calling a bad game than Jeff Van Gundy. He's he has the he has the best commentary during a game. Like you're like a baseball announcer in a 11-1 11 11-run game and they they tell stories for 2 hours and essentially I think you and Mark Jackson and Mike Breen have a chemistry that is it almost rivals the TNT analyst uh, crew in the studio. Um I, how did you get how did you get so good at that 
Well, I think uh, it all starts with Mike Breen. Obviously, his uh, his abilities like he's like a great point guard, and Mark and I are like spot up shooters. So, you know, he creates all the action and all the plays, and we just stand there and and uh, talk a little bit. So, I think it starts with him. But also, as you know, uh, Mike, because you were part of it, uh, we were all at the Knicks at the same time, and so yes. it's uh, friendship. Uh, it's true friendship. Uh, and also now we work together, but it started, you know, with uh, Mark as a great player, Mike as a broadcaster coming up from Don Imus to Knicks radio to Knicks TV to now, you know, the voice of the NBA. And, and I coached, uh, I was in New York for 13, you know, years. So, you know, those are real friendships. And then obviously I kept uh, with Mark. I, um, I coached him in Houston as well. And um, and then I was fortunate enough uh, that they allowed me to join their uh, broadcasting team. So, yeah, it's uh, it's all based on friendship. Is this your uh, coming up? Is, pardon my ignorance. Is this your 12th or 13th straight NBA finals calling? Yeah, I'm not sure about all that. I, I, but you started with I'm them. Just, you started with them right after you uh, coaching in Houston in 2007. Yeah. Yeah. So. I did that the finals that year. It was San Antonio and uh, Cleveland, uh, which was a sweep, I believe. And uh, yeah, I've done them since. So whatever that is, this would be 13 then. You know what's insane about that uh, that that finals is that was the that was the first finals with LeBron James. I believe he was shoot 21, 22 years old. Um, and and looking back. This is this is the first playoff. This is the first year of the NBA playoffs in our lifetimes since 2005 without LeBron James. I mean, it's like thir- a 13 year record has been broken, and I kind of miss the guy. <laughs> well, you know, he's going to go down as one of the iconic players in NBA history. So certainly, you know, he's been on a terrific run for so long that it it's sort of startling uh, when his team doesn't make the playoffs. And uh, particularly, I think most people thought when he went to L.A., he and they would then just automatically be a playoff team. And the question was more so, are they a championship caliber team? And and now the question is, what, what, yeah. you know, what, what, what do you do next? Where, where do you go in Lakerland? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I think, you know, they're being painted, uh, and maybe it's well-earned, I have no idea, as being a dysfunctional team, uh, an organization. But all I know is on Christmas Day, before James got, you know, the day James got injured, they were at Golden State, and they were in fourth place. And then from his injury on Christmas Day forward, they just didn't play good basketball. But uh, I think uh, Frank Vogel is an outstanding coach. Uh, I think that uh, they have work to do to unite their organization. But if you have James and you have good coaching and you make you know, the right player uh, moves, you're going to be back in the playoffs. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, do you – when you see all the – 
I don't know what you call it. They, the, dysfunction is such a cliched term now, but but a lot of the infighting does it does it remind you at all of those days when things were unstable in New York and people didn't realize that they probably had it better than they did? Not really, but I don't really know what's going on in L.A. I think in yeah. New York, it was just a different time as far as how the team was covered. Um, you know, we had been good for a long time in New York, uh, and a lot of it had centered around the leadership of Dave Checkett. So Dave was a tremendous leader um, in the front office. And so uh, we had great leadership, and uh, obviously – you know, losing does, you know, stuff to organizations and teams and so does winning because most people run to credit and away from blame. And it's just, it's an interesting phenomena. Mm. People forget uh, that some, some of you young listeners forget that Jeff Van Gundy uh, was Pat Riley's assistant in New York. When Don Nelson was fired from the Knicks, Jeff took over in 1995. Um, uh, I think it was Frank Isola, me, and I don't know who else. Maybe we we Thomas knocked Hill. on your Thomas Hill. That's right, Thomas Hill at the New York Post, and we walked into your uh, hotel room at the Ritz Carlton in Philadelphia, and all of a sudden you let us in and said, "Yeah, come on in. This isn't how I thought I would ever get a head job, but this is how I did." And it more and and that conversation morphed into I don't know one of one of my favorite interviews in in the history of my career because. You know, it was, I guess like all of us, we we sort of, um, I think why, especially why Frank and I bonded with you is because we saw a guy that in layman's terms went from the mailroom, a graduate assistant job with Rick Patino in Providence um, to, you know, leaving Rochester High School and becoming a, a college assistant for almost no money to a head coach in the NBA. It was the great mailroom rise, you know, to CEO almost. And and so, and I remember you getting emotional, but not because of you getting the job so much, but because of you knew you knew the sacrifice that your father, uh, Bill, went through in every small town from Visalia to G Genesee to wherever he coached. Uh, he never had the opportunity to coach at that level, but you knew he was just as good a coach as you or better. Well, no question. I think uh, there's a certain order for players to go up the ranks, you know, where, you know, the best high school players become the best college players become the best pro players. You know, I mean, that's how it works in coaching. It's totally different. Um, a lot of it is there's so many guys that are qualified and so, so many of these jobs or the best jobs, it doesn't matter at what level it's just good fortune. It's not that you're a better coach or a more qualified coach. It's just, right place, right time, knowing the right people. And so for myself, uh, I absolutely understood, you know, that this was not me get, becoming the Knicks coach. They could have picked Don Chaney to become the Knicks coach. He was a former NBA coach of the year. He was on the same staff. Uh, he knew Coach Nelson forever because uh, they played together back with the great Celtic team. So, you know, I was just fortunate that, Dave and uh, Ernie saw in me something uh, that I probably didn't even see in myself and gave me that opportunity. Um, 
I was just happy being an MBA assistant. I, I was more mm-hmm. than content. I had a great job. And uh, when given that opportunity, I think I had confidence that I could do the job, but also humility enough to know that there were guys that were passed over that were much more accomplished coaches at that time than I was. And yet uh, you turned into a hell of a coach. There's no question about it. You, uh, you led the Knicks to playoffs. I think every year you were there and, and people, anybody that uh, bitched about playoff basketball in New York and that they didn't go far enough. I look at some of the guys, some of the, uh, some some of the wins and playoff series wins that you got out of those teams, because looking back, um, I don't I don't know if Patrick Ewing is is uh, synonymous with Giannis at this point, but but I look at the Milwaukee Bucks and I I don't know if there's another hall future Hall of Famer on the roster. Certainly there wasn't on the Knicks at the time, and I look back and I go, geez, man, if Patrick Ewing that that I guess. Uh, Pat Riley said this to me when he spoke about Ewing a, a while ago. He said, my biggest regret in my career was that I was never able to get Patrick Ewing a championship. And I think it falls on everybody, but especially um, people in the organization that maybe never put the the secondary superstar around him, even though they felt they did. Well, I think, you know, you can blame somebody or you can look for people to blame, but I look at uh, – that's why I've never, like, judged players on championships won because yeah. there's honor in staying in the fight uh, with the team you're on, and that's what Ewing did. He he could have bailed and go, gone to join up with Jordan and won championships, but to me, that wouldn't have increased how I felt about him as a player. He, he was an incredible leader, player, teammate, and, and most importantly – uh, he aligned with his head coaches uh, and allowed them to coach him and the team. And so sometimes, uh, and, and Pat Riley said this, uh, not about our teams, but it fit our teams in New York. Sometimes you're born as a team in the wrong time. And he talked about that with the Dallas Mavericks back when he was the coach of the Lakers. He talked often about how Harper and Blackman and Aguirre or Tarpley or whoever it might have been, they had these great, great teams, and unfortunately, they were, they were that team was built and born uh, at the same time of the Lakers dynasty, and they could never get past the Lakers. And similarly, back in the Eastern Conference at that time, everybody was trying to scale uh, the mountain that Jordan uh, was, and you could beat him in games, you could beat him in playoff games, but no one found the way. Uh, to beat him in a playoff series. And um, it, it was no no lack of effort or energy or passion. In fact, that's why I've always felt those players on those teams were absolute champions because they gave more to a process of being great than any teams I've ever been with before or since. That 90... 90- oh two, three, four, five, yeah. those seasons, uh, incredible, incredible effort. Um, and just not quite good enough to get over the hump. And, and yet still, I mean, to this day, and you probably feel it too, 
they they have such an identity in New York. They're they're one of the great uh, second place teams of all time in some ways. And it, it not to say that in any way that was a bad thing because they did. They gave it their all. Uh, Starks, Oakley, uh, Anthony Mason, God rest his soul, and and all the guy Derek Harper, who was sort of trudging along after his prime, but he he had so much strength, so much heart, and so many clutch shots. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I shoot, having loved the game all my life, I think I just watching those guys, I learned to play and understand the game more because I'd see a guy like Oakley would literally, Chris Webber had so much more physical talent and he had so much more uh, skill and, and everything that Oakley didn't have. And yet Charles Oakley refused to be beaten down the floor to his spot on the block by Chris Webber. It was one of the most amazing things. I like, this guy, this guy refuses to let this guy beat him down the floor to the blocks. And I thought that to, to me, in, in my mind, I still see that. And I go, Dad, there's something about heart and effort that you can't teach. And if, if every player had that in his, in his chest, uh, I mean, they'd be Hall of Famers. So. Well, listen, Oakley um, was one of the great competitors to ever play this game. To me, the best help defender – uh, as a big man that's ever played in the NBA. Uh, his intelligence uh, defensively uh, was off the charts. Uh, without question, the, the combination of intelligence, uh, intensity, passion, anticipation made him one of the elite defenders. And now the, the league is, is covered far differently today. Uh, than it was back then. Back then, as you mentioned, when you were in second, you know, when you came in second place, um, there was a lot more criticism of players uh, back then, uh, critiquing of players. Now, for whatever reasons, uh, the coverage has softened up a lot. But back in New York at, at those times, uh, you had to have a tough, uh, shell about yourself and that's one thing I always admired about uh, you know Charles and Patrick Harper and Starks they kept coming back they didn't have um, you know they they weren't resentful of of losing or they didn't give in they just kept going and uh, you know it was next year and next opportunity and their belief never never wavered and I I learned so much from them, and you don't find competitors like that uh, in this league today, particularly so many of them on the same team. An incredible experience for a coach like myself. That was dope. Uh, hi, Mark Lassery, uh co-owner of the Milwaukee Bucks. Um, every now and then I get tortured by Mike Weist for his show. Um, but I want to tell you, in spite of the torture, you guys should watch it. Great show. Phenomenal guests. Um, what else can I say? You know, if he wasn't doing this, we'd probably have him playing for the team because he played once a long time ago. Um, it was a long time ago. It's sad how he is today. But you never know. So thank you again. Please watch the show. Full stop. Bucks co-owner Mark Lassery gave us 40 outstanding minutes and you'll hear it all next week on this very show. 
If you like what we're serving, please download, subscribe, listen, rate us. And if you're on Apple iTunes, leave a comment and we'll be eternally grateful. But for now, more from a member of the NBA's top broadcast team, a man who led the Knicks on a magical ride 20 seasons ago. Jeff Van Gundy's my guest, uh, and you know his voice very well from ESPN, where he's been for over a decade calling games with Mike Breen and uh, Mark Jackson, and and a coach that I got to know when he was co- when he was coaching the Knicks for many years under Pat Riley, and later uh, under Don Nelson, and then by himself for many years before it, because because I think that New York becomes so big in people's minds, and I feel like in some ways, Jeff, like your identity, you almost have to go back to talk to New York about everybody every time you give an interview with somebody. And I feel like, yeah, it was a piece of his life, but this was the coolest piece for me anyway. I got to, I got to share this. The, 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 uh, all the things that happened during the 1999 season have already happened. Uh, Ernie Grunfeld is fired. The team is in eighth place, barely holding on to the last playoff spot. And the trades for Marcus Camby and Latrell Sprewell have been mocked. And everybody's wondering why they gave the heart and soul away and John Starks and Charles Oakley. And all the infighting organizationally came down to uh, you remaining as the coach. Dave Checkett's choosing essentially you over Oni Grunfeld, which was never an open fight, but it because because ownership and everybody else let thing let people get away with uh infighting at the garden and that's and it was a little bit of a shark tank that's what it became i i find out that phil jackson had met with the knicks um and you're the coach still and and on and that day's front page the story the story reads that you know phil jackson has met with dave check it's it's game four of the atlanta hawks series you have a chance to sweep the hawks and go into the eastern conference finals um, do you remember this day? Well, I think so many, when you coach for so long in one place, and then also, Mike, when you, uh, you know, it's been such a long period of time since then, uh, you can forget a lot of things about a lot of specific games, but there are some things that remained etched in your mind. And the response by the fans towards me on that day was uh, something I'll never forget. And I think it shows you a myth about New York that they only respond to stars. Um, certainly I was no you know, star or celebrity. And it's similarly, some of the most beloved players in Nick history for the fan base uh, weren't stars uh, or the best players, you know, Starks and, Mason, um, Harper, uh, they were Oakley. They responded to hard work and competitive spirit, and uh, and that's why I'll never forget that that game that day. Mm. Yeah, I was sitting courtside. Frank Isola was as well, and a, and a bunch of the beat writers when they still gave us good seats, and <laughs> and the, and the Hawks are about to go down four straight to the Knicks, and what everybody realizes now was just a masterful stroke of genius, not only by Ernie getting younger players to, uh, to overwhelm less athletic teams, but Jeff Van Gundy to exploit those ma- mismatches and find a way to get those players up for that, that playoff series. And that whole arena, 19,763 people are chanting, 
Jeff and Gandhi, Jeff. And, and I just remember looking at you and it looked like you were going to lose it until you grabbed your diet Coke. <laughs> is that, is that, is that, is that the sequence? Well, you know, uh, a couple of weeks earlier, that would have been, uh, they would have ended with sucks. So, you know, <laughs> it, it, things, things can turn quickly uh, uh, in sports. And I would just say that you're right. Um, uh, I think, you know, the Sprewell edition, you know, so much in that lockout season uh, has been forgotten, like Sprewell's injury uh, to start the season. You know, that right. to me was if it was in a if it was in a normal season, I think he missed 13 games. It would have been you know no big thing. You'd have had a lot of time to work through it. But because of the compressed nature of that schedule, somebody missing that many games, coming to a new team, and I think we had like uh, maybe a 10 day training camp uh, where people were out of shape. It was you know we had major changes to our team, so the continuity factor wasn't there. But even though we were eight seed, I think the one thing that people forget about that season is if it would have been an 82-game season, we would have ended up as a 50-win team. We were a really good team. And so, unfortunately for Miami, they met us in the first round. Uh, we found our way to get a, you know, a dramatic uh, series win down there. And then Atlanta was a little hurt, and we swept them. And so by the, by the time we rolled in to play in Indiana – you know, we were healthy. We were confident. Um, I mean, Ewing wasn't, you know, real healthy. But uh, for the most part, we were really good at that point of the year. So, yeah, that Atlanta series was uh, interesting because they weren't playing. They were, I think we were playing at the football stadium. Uh, and uh, Camby had one of the most incredible plays, the dunk over oh. Matumbo in game two. Um, one of the great plays yeah. that I ever witnessed. Um, live, terrific. Yeah, it was uh, out of this world, and it, it led to something even greater. I um, I still go back to how I got the Phil Jackson story. Phil Jackson asked me one day. He said, "How did nobody was talking? How did you find out?" And I go, "It, it was a joke. I I just called your agent in Montana, Todd Musburger, and I, I he picked up the phone. I said, "Yeah, I found out the Knicks the Knicks met with them." And 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 uh, I, I kind of I laughed, and Todd had this big pause, and his as he said, ah, sigh, and he goes, "Those fuckers, they weren't supposed to say anything." <laughs> and I'm like, "What? Wait, what? Why well, didn't tell me everything?" And now I can reveal my source on that because I don't know. Um, Todd's already got the next money. I think he feels probably good about things. Right yeah, now, it's interesting. You know that like that came out the day of uh, Game Four. Yeah, and. Um, and I, or no, it came out before game four, right? Like, yeah. Yeah. Because I remember going to the press conference before the game and being asked about it. And I, I really didn't have any idea about it because, you know, like I wasn't reading, like you didn't read the papers or you were aware of what was as you're walking there. I, I just remember someone telling me like, you know, this is going to be asked. And I was like, you know, I didn't have any idea. And I don't know, did they deny it initially or something? Yeah, the whole thing, was sure turned, exactly. the, the whole thing turned into part of the circus of that season in many ways because uh, Dave Chekets had told me that uh, that was emphatically uh, um, a lie and that I would that I would ruin my career if I printed that story. And then 
I'll, everybody that gives Jim Jim Gray credit for being LeBron's foof or whatever, I I, all, I always defer to Jim Gray because he got Dave to admit on the broadcast that day somehow that he did in fact meet with uh, Phil Jackson and it ruined Peter Vesey's day because he had told uh, Hannah, Hannah Storm on NBC that that story in the Times was a lie. And for a moment, I thought I got played. And um, and then when it all came out, I went up to Jim Gray and I said, thank you, thank you. I, um, someone from my own paper even came up to me and said, what are you doing? And so it, it vindicated a lot. But but the best part was, this will tell you everything you need to know about Dave Checkets. He takes me some clandestine, uh, you know, office under the garden, which I'd never been to, to this day. And he, he Barry Watkins, the former PR guy, brings me in there and Chekets looks at me and he goes, I'll never lie to you again. I'm really sorry. I'm going to go tell the media. And this was the day after you guys went, I'm going to go tell the media I lied. And, uh, and from that moment on, Dave Chekets and I were great. And, um, and I was just happy that you took the Knicks to the finals. You were like an Allen Houston runner in the lane against Miami from maybe not having that job and all of a sudden you're taking the Knicks to the finals within a couple more weeks. And I don't know, it was, it was just great to see uh, people that I thought really worked hard and didn't have agendas just winning and getting the most out of their team. And so, for, so as a beat writer, you know, you, you don't like to root, but man, it was fun to root that year. <laughs> yeah. And those guys were the, the players that we had, uh, they were easy easy to get behind because yes. they were, you know, they, we had, you know, the thing about the Knicks is uh, we may not have always played great, but there were very few times uh, during any season that you said, you would say as a fan, man, I got shortchanged tonight. They didn't, they didn't bring it or that player didn't bring it. And, um, and that's what made it, I think, such a, a good group to coach is that, by nature, they were very competitive. Yeah, they were. And I'll finish it with one of my favorite scenes um, in all your time um, as coach of the Knicks and shoot the Rockets too, was I just remember your little daughter, Maddie, you and Kim's daughter running up to you, uh, little blonde pigtails, and she'd run up into your arms. And that was the most important thing in your world, in your office. And you'd be drinking your Diet Coke and talking about the game. And and it made me feel so old when I got an email from her recently, and she was a member of the Houston Rockets uh, a PR staff or something. And I, I go, what? What is this? What? Like, I, I, I must be eighty years old now. Jeff Van Gundy's daughters all grown up. <laughs> yeah. I mean, do you, do you um, look at like how 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 long you've her, been around? Still has her hand out for more money. Like she's still <laughs> on scholarship. Gosh darn. No, but it, it does make you feel like. Um, Time time does fly, and uh, thankfully, you know she uh, is doing well. And uh, like she doesn't work for, she works in a PR firm that a lot of uh, some of the representation is of uh, rocket ownership. But it's uh, it's amazing wow. um, how fast, as you know, Mike, with kids yourself, like you 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 look up and and you blink, and it's like five years later, ten years later. And here we are, you know, 20 years later. And, uh, yeah, it's Amazing. Uh, one of the things during Ewing's years, and you always said this afterwards and even during the time, was, you know, how to coach an aging superstar. Do you feel like whoever, Frank Vogel, is getting LeBron now has to deal with the same 
same sort of predicament because you you advocated for you know Lakers if if they sh- not that they should trade LeBron but they should at least explore the possibility when you have this kind of season uh, is that is that going to be an ongoing hurdle for whoever coaches LeBron the next five years of his career? Well, I think it's you know he's obviously still a great player, um, but has been noted by so many father time is undefeated. So eventually there will be a slow erosion of athleticism and skills. Um, And it is very difficult to coach, you know, the iconic players in decline because uh, they see that they can still do it on some nights, but they can't do it on every night. And we have great examples of guys who, age gracefully uh, like Tim Duncan who passed the torch on to Ginobili and Parker. And then you have other players uh, who haven't aged as gracefully, haven't understood uh, that they're not the same player and that's when it ends bad. And so um, hopefully for everybody involved, I think James has got, you know, obviously years left before that inevitable decline uh, but if he stays around long enough, it happens to everybody. And uh, I hope whoever whoever's the coach at that time with the Lakers or wherever James is, that um, they they can handle that um, changing of the guard with grace and dignity and have it end well because far too many uh, NBA careers for the great players don't end like they should. So true. Jeff Van Gundy's only got a few more minutes with us because of so many media demands around the NBA finals. I'm just going to go straight to the lightning round, Jeff, because we could talk, I could talk to you for hours. You could probably talk to me for 30 more seconds, but I could talk to you for hours. Um, I, I, the, I, every question I give you is going to lead into a story, I'm sure, but, but we'll see. Um, did you ever go out with Jodie Foster? The actress. No, I choked. I and choked what, at Yale. So I had my chance. I had my chance and I blew it. And like, uh, she went on the Rich Eisen show recently to promote a film and Rich Eisen brought that up to her. And she said, Jeff Van Gundy, not memorable. Crush me. <laughs> Crush me. People, people, people don't know the story. Jeff Van Gundy was, uh, was accepted to Yale because it shows you how smart he is. He um, he was a classmate with Jody Foster. He was, I believe, in the same dorm. And I think that you and your dorm mate or your dorm room crowd of guys decided, all right, we're going to put in a hundred bucks each and see who gets to have the first date with her. Because at that point, she'd already been a taxi driver. She was a famous actress and she was beautiful and gorgeous and smart. And you're walking. Tell me, tell the story about you have your shot. You're walking by the popcorn machine. Yeah, so uh, we all lived in a freshman quadrangle, huge, at Yale. And um, in that freshman quadrangle, there was uh, a great candy shop right at the front. So I was coming back from the gym, and then right down the street, all these sirens came. And so I came to a stop right in front of the candy store. uh, As all these sirens go by, I'm watching the sirens. And the popcorn smells great. And after the sirens uh, finish going by, a voice from behind says, uh, 
man, that popcorn smells good. And I turn around and I'm about to say, yeah, it does. And it's her. And I stumbled, I stammered, and then I ran. And uh, I just took off without saying anything. And so uh, I choked to the, you know, most epic proportions. I lost out on the $1,200 and I lost out on meeting Thane uh, right there. So, yeah, choke. I I love it. Uh, Your line afterwards, which I remember printing was, I I vowed after that night that I would never be unprepared again. Uh, You sure have. And do you want to coach again? Does Jeff, does Jeff Van Gundy want to coach again in the NBA? Well, I've enjoyed uh, my time at the USA basketball. I've been doing that the last couple of years. I don't think you ever, I don't think you're ever forced to declare one way or the other. I think it all is based on, you know, fit. And so uh, fit from a coaching standpoint, fit from a lifestyle standpoint, from a moving standpoint. So there's so many things that go into it. Uh, But my actual love of coaching and love of teaching has never waned. So yeah, I'm, but I'm, I'm good either way. I, you know, if I do it, that's great. If I find a fit and if, if it doesn't ever happen again, I was more than fortunate uh, to be a head coach in the NBA for, I don't know, 11 years. So really, uh, I have no complaints. Is Mark Jackson your battery mate in many ways on the ESPN telecast and the ABC telecast? It's, has he been blackballed in some ways from coaching in the NBA? I, I just feel like he really deserves a shot, and I know he wants to coach again. And yet this experience with the Warriors in which – he, he led a, a very good team to a very great record and was ousted for different reasons. I think it's almost uh, it, it's it's colored him in a way that it's almost wrong. Well, I, I don't understand it either. He did a fabulous job with the Warriors changing their whole uh, culture from a very uh, mediocre franchise into a franchise on an upward tick. And so um, – I don't understand uh, that he hasn't gotten another opportunity. Um, He's such a great uh, person, teacher of the game, and communicator. He's an unbelievable leader. And you notice that from way back when he was a a young player at St. John's all the way through. So I don't want to say blackballed because I don't know. I think that's a harsh term. But certainly, I don't think he's been given his due as how good a coach he's, he, how good a coaching job he did there, and I also don't think that uh, Warrior ownership or management has done him any favors in promoting him. You know, Steve Kerr, I have such great respect for him because Steve Kerr always mentions Mark's contribution yeah. uh, to this whole run, uh, and his humility in doing that, uh, I think, is so admirable. And, and I don't see the same type of uh, help being given to Mark by, you know, Warrior, uh, Warriors ownership. Uh, and uh, I think it's, uh, you know, it's unfortunate because Mark is a great, great coach and a great person. And I think they've sort of uh, undermined his chances at, at times when they could have promoted his chances and uh, I think it's unfortunate. I agree. Uh, the series between the Raptors and the Warriors, the best player in the series, Kawhi Leonard, 
or a, well, I don't know if Kevin Durant is even going to play at all, but, uh, or Steph Curry, best player. I think it all depends on, on the series. Any of those guys could be the best player in the series. And, uh, because Kawhi Leonard has played so well, that's why they have a, a I think a great shot at winning the whole thing. And you like uh, them win- do you like them winning the whole thing? Uh, I think they have, like, if I was, I think you, to, to say that the Warriors are the prohibitive favorite, I think is wrong. You know, Toronto has home court, they have a healthier team, and they haven't had this long layoff, so they're able to maintain their rhythm uh, and much better. So to me, they have three huge advantages going in uh, to the start of this series. So I think, uh, I do think they have a great shot. Mm. Last one for Jeff Van Gundy, uh, who I think is more of almost a friend than a source at this point in my life. When you, when I interviewed PJ Carlissimo, I asked you um, if you could remember any stories about him. And you simply said, when I was a graduate assistant at Providence and he was the head coach at Seton Hall, he treated me so kindly and I've never forgotten that. I thought, it, one, it says a lot about you, but also it says about the people you need to be successful at your level in this game, if you had to really point to anyone uh, head and shoulders for, for giving you this life, who would it be? Well, I, I think, you know, certainly it starts out with family, the background in coaching, uh, understanding what it takes. And then I think, you know, the three people to me would be uh, Pat, uh, Pat Riley, Patrick Ewing, and Rick Pitino. Without question, the opportunities that all those guys presented to me uh, gave me a chance uh, to have opportunities that without their support, without presenting those opportunities, I would have never had. So, um, you know, I was more than fortunate uh, to coach a best player in his prime who unequivocally gave uh, me support. Rick Pitino gave me opportunity and taught me so much about um, basketball at Providence. And then Pat Riley keeping me on after uh, so many, you know, after John McLeod had been uh, dismissed and took the Notre Dame job that he kept me on. He taught me so much about what it takes to win the NBA. So those three guys um, without their help and uh, opportunities presented you know, I, I would have never had uh, all the things that have happened to me in basketball. Jeff Van Gundy, thank you so much. Uh, I can't thank you enough. Your parents, uh, your brother, everybody, they've been good to me over the years. And they didn't necessarily have to because I'm a media guy. I'm not in the business. Uh, I'm not a coach or anything. And, uh, yeah, you've just you've, you've, you've never changed. You've always been genuine and authentic. And whether you're whether it was your Honda Civic getting blown off the runway by a bad landing in New York or or, or whatever was going on, you were always real and good. And so I, I'd be remiss if I didn't say thank you. And uh, shoot, um, I, I, I hope you have a great call in the finals this year. Appreciate it, Mike. Take care. All right, let's go. Time to stick the landing. What can I say? Jeff Van Gundy was just tremendous. Thanks to him for sharing so many good stories. Thanks also to our Pure Hoops media team. Bruce Bernstein, you produced the hell out of this show. Ben Wolfen, 
Your edit skills make me sound halfway articulate. And all the support staff in New York, including Scott Kalka. Earlier in the show, you heard Bucks co-owner Mark Lasry extol the virtues of the Mike Wise Show. And you'll hear much more from him next week when we spend 40 minutes with a man who truly can say, the buck stops here. <laughs> and please check out our other Pure Herbs Media shows. Catch and shoot each Wednesday with Adam Stanko and Noah Kozlov. Buckets, boards, and blocks each Thursday with Monica McNutt. And the Pure Hoops Pod with BJ Armstrong and Eric Newman. Rate, review, subscribe, download, listen, and enjoy, people. Peace out. The Mike Wise Show used to be called The Wise Ass Show, but it remains a presentation of Pure Hoops Media.